All right, folks. Well, for the past eight weeks, we've been going through a special sermon series entitled, What Now NCF? And the whole purpose of this series is to ask ourselves, in light of God's commanding and amazing call for us as a ministry in becoming our own separate and independent church from our parent congregation, KCQ, we ask ourselves, what are the priorities? What are the goals? What are the plans that we should be focusing on as we move forward in this amazing call that God has given us? Well, today, we come to the very last sermon in this series before we go into the series of Advent, as we always do at the end of the year. And so I was thinking to myself, what can I say? What can I share with you to where not only will this message be memorable to you, but it will also kind of summarize and give you the full big picture of the things that we have said. And as I pondered and pondered, I said, ah, I know what I'll talk about. Aliens. I want to talk about aliens, specifically my fascination with aliens. You see, just a little uh, brief biography of your pastor here. When I was around six or seven, I had a major, major obsession with extraterrestrials, aliens, you know, UFO, green men from Mars. You know, when most of my peers were into G.I. Joe, He-Man, hot rod cars, I was literally all crazy about aliens, like even to the point where I got so obsessed that I actually literally started fantasizing into thinking, maybe I'm an alien, right? I actually started wondering You know, that maybe, you know, my scientific alien parents came to earth, accidentally left me behind, and then one day they're going to retrieve me back home, and all of a sudden I'll feel complete, and I'll feel like I finally found what I've been missing in my life. Of course, my earthly mother, my real mom, beat that out of me, but nevertheless, I was fascinated. Now, before you think your pastor's a little too cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, In my defense, you have to understand the era that I lived in. I lived in a time where movies like Star Wars, Starman, My Stepmother's an Alien, Aliens was always on the movie screen. I was always watching TV where shows like Buck Rogers and Star Trek was always on the tube. And you combine that with the imaginations of a young child. I mean, can you really blame me for getting too caught up into that? And the good news now is... My mom was effective in her beating of me. I no longer believe in this notion of aliens, even though, according to a recent ABC News poll, over 80, oh no, over 50%, even wishful thinking, over 50% of American population do believe in the idea of extraterrestrial. I do not. I no longer believe in this idea of green men observing us on their UFOs, doing weird experiments, or sending us off into distant space. And so you're wondering yourself, well, why are you even bringing it up, and what does it have to do with what Jesus is talking about In Matthew 5. Ah, here's the connecting point. When you take a look at this passage of what Jesus is saying, it's very similar to a lot of these alien movies that were popular in the 80s. If you ever watched these extraterrestrial movies in the 80s, one of the recurring themes that you see in all of them is this notion of a being from another world coming into ours and encountering a human being. And all throughout the movie, this human being is trying to teach this foreign being about what it means to be human right? You see it in E.T., you see it in Starman, you see it in My Stepmother is an Alien, you see this recurring theme where this alien is trying to figure out what does it mean to be human? Well, believe it or not, Jesus is teaching us the same thing. In this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is trying to teach us this notion of the Christian's responsibility in the world. And you know what our main responsibility is as followers of Jesus? We are here to teach the world, the people of the world, what it means to be a true 
human being. You see, whether you realize it or not, there are beings out there that have no idea about what it means to be a human. But of course, these people are not from some distant galaxy far, far away. These are people right around us. These are people that we work with, the people we go to school with. These are even people that we grew up with in the forms of our siblings or maybe even our parents. You see, the Bible teaches us that even though other people may biologically be speaking, be human beings, from a spiritual standpoint, if they don't follow Christ, if they're not a follower of Jesus, they have no idea whatsoever in terms of what it means to be a true human being. And in a sense, Jesus is going to show us in this passage what that looks like and how we as Christians are called to fulfill that responsibility. And the way he does it is very intriguing because he uses this imagery of salt and light to show us our responsibility to the world of teaching the people of the world of what it means to be an actual human being in the eyes of God. And so with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you this morning. Number one, let's talk about the persevering or preserving, excuse me, preserving power of salt the preserving power of salt. Number two, the flavoring goodness of salt. And finally, the adoration of light. The preserving power of salt, the flavoring goodness of salt, and finally, the adoration of light. Let's jump in. First, the preserving power of salt. uh, Salt, excuse me, I'm a little jumbled this morning. If you have our passage up, please. In verse 13, Jesus starts off with this statement saying of his followers, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Now, that's a very interesting statement, but what in the world does it mean? What is Jesus saying that when his followers are, quote, salt of the earth? Well, if you knew a little bit about the cultural context of the people living in this time, you would know exactly what he would be talking about. So let me explain. See, during this time, there was no such thing as refrigeration. GE, Whirlpool, Maytag didn't even exist, which means people needed to have a way of preserving their food, especially their most expensive foods that they didn't get to eat every day, such as meat. And that's where salt comes in. Salt was and is, by the way, a still natural preservator of foods, which is why people would take a bunch of salt and they would rub it into their meats so that it would have longevity to where they can continue to eat this kind of food because as I say meat was not a common meal that people ate back in the ancient world this is why by the way in the ancient world salt was also known as white gold because it was a highly valuable commodity because of what it could do salt has a natural ability of slowing down the natural decay and the breakdown of foods especially meat now when you realize that is how people back then looked at salt you begin to understand what jesus is saying to his disciples when he says you are the salt of the earth because in essence what jesus is saying is basically this just like salt keeps food from going bad christians keep the world from going bad let me say that again just like salt keeps food from going bad christians keep the world from going bad that's essentially what jesus is saying in that statement when he says you christian You are the salt of the earth. In a sense, you are the preserver of human society, of human civilization, of human culture. Now, by putting it that way, by saying that Christians are salt, he's also saying something about the world, which is what? The world is essentially kind of like a piece of meat laid out in the hot sun. It is falling apart. It is decaying, and it needs salt to be preserved, and so also our world is decaying. It is falling apart. It is breaking down. And so Christians need to be in it to slow down that process, to even reverse the process if possible. This is, in fact, the Apostle Paul's point when he writes this words, these words in Romans chapter 8, verse 20. Listen to what he says. 
For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into glorious freedom of the children of God. Now, what is the Apostle Paul saying here? He's saying it's because of sin, specifically Adam's sin and our sin, that has caused the decay and the corruption and the spoiling of the world, which is why it is yearning for the children of God to be revealed because the purposes of why God keeps Christians in the world after they get saved rather than just bringing them up into heaven is so that they can preserve and keep the decay at bay from what is happening in the world due to sin. And that's exactly Jesus' point when he says Christians should be salt of the earth. That is our responsibility. We are called to go out into the world so that we can prevent, undermine, and slow down the breakdown, the decay that is the result of sin. But the question is, well, how do you exactly do that? Well, that's not too hard to figure out. If, as Paul says in Romans 8.20, that it's because of sin that's causing the decay, that must mean that the opposite of sin, which is what? Godliness, Holiness would have the opposite effect, right? That when Christians are living godly, holy lives, you actually prevent the world from decaying even worse. In fact, that is, in fact, what Jesus is saying when you're called to be salt to the earth. To be a salty Christian is to be a holy Christian. To be a person who is of salt of the earth is someone who is holy inwardly and outwardly, who has integrity, morally pure, and is consistent in their devotion to God. Listen to how one theologian by the name of R.V.G. Tasker puts it. He writes this, quote, Christians are to be a moral disinfectant in a world where moral standards are low, constantly changing, or non-existent. Do you know what it means to be a true human being in the eyes of God? It means to be salty. And you know what it means to be salty? It means to be a person of integrity, of honesty, of ethics, of holiness, of godliness. And when that isn't the case, when people who call themselves Christians don't act Christianly to where they do stupid things such as cheating on exams, sleeping around, getting drunk, playing office politics, throwing people under the bus to career, advance yourself, to be involved in scandal or to cover up scandal, you become what Jesus refers to as salt that has lost its taste. Salt that has lost its taste. Now that is an odd statement. Why is that odd? Any chemistry majors in here? It's an odd statement because from a technical standpoint, from a chemical standpoint, that is not possible. You cannot extract the flavor of salt from salt itself. It is not possible to do that chemically. But in the ancient world, it happened all the time. How? Well, remember, salt is what? White gold. People want to sell a bunch of salt so they can make a lot of money. So what do they do? They contaminate it, right? They put salt with other white substances that pass for salt but don't taste like salt, and they mix it up so they can have more salt to sell, so they can make more money. Yes, in the ancient world, it was notorious of a problem where people were selling salt that wasn't pure. Because when you mix salt with other things that look like salt but isn't salt, that don't taste like salt, what happens to this thing that passes as salt? It doesn't taste as salty, right? It's this principle of a contaminated mixture that causes salt to lose its taste in the ancient world. And that same principle applies metaphorically when it comes to Christians interacting with the non-Christian world or with non-Christians in such a way that they start losing their salty flavor. They start losing their holiness. I see this problem happening all the time. You know, one clear example that I see this is in the issues of relationships. 
One of the saddest things that I sometimes see is some of our devoted sisters or brothers, but it's usually the sisters that kind of fall into this trap, unfortunately, where they're devoted to God, they're committed to his ways, they're living a life of godliness, but they happen to meet a guy somewhere at work or amongst friends, and this guy is not a follower of Christ, and this guy is not someone who is devoted to him. And I always tell this sister, please don't do this. Don't pursue this relationship because you are not going to achieve what you think you're going to achieve. You're not going to convert him through your relationship. This whole friendship evangelism or dating evangelism is notoriously wrong. And yet, sometimes they go ahead with it, sometimes even getting married, not by me. And sure enough, the same thing happens. The trend is the fervor, devotion to God, their, their, their desire to be godly, diminishes and more and more the flavoring that they once had of holiness just starts eroding more and more. Another area where I see this happening constantly, unfortunately, is when we have some of our young people graduating college, graduating grad school, start working as a professional. They start climbing the corporate ladder, start making more money. And all of a sudden, the idols of our secular society of comfort, Security and status become more of a priority and their priority to Christ and his kingdom and his church and the mission of the church to bless the world all of a sudden starts diminishing more and more. Christian, hear this. God has called you to show the world what it means to be truly human. He didn't call you to get married. He didn't call you to be successful in New York City. He didn't call you to make lots of money. He called you with one main mission, to show the world what it means to be a human being by being salty, by being holy. When you live a life of holiness, you are blessing the world. When you choose to be sexually pure as a single, you are blessing the world. When you choose to be faithful to your spouse when you're married, you are blessing the world. When you choose to not throw your coworker under the bus for the purposes of advancing your career, you are blessing the world. When you turn down a high-paying job because it would require you to compromise your ethics, you are blessing the world. Living a life of godliness is what it means to be salt of the earth. And it's part of our responsibility in our mission as followers of Jesus as we live in the world. Now, you'll notice I said part of our responsibility because being salt of the earth is not only being godly. There's another responsibility attached to that idea as well. And to explain what I mean... Let me go to my next point, the flavoring goodness of salt. You know, I grew up in North Carolina, and in that culture, it's a very food-oriented culture. I mean, and nowadays, everywhere is food, but, you know, southern food has this notorious reputation of being a very succulent, very, very crazy uh, obsession with food. And I remember when I was in college, I saw this in full living color when I was at a picnic with my college fellowship, and there was a brother in our ministry where he went to a a big bowl of watermelon sliced up, put a bunch of it on his plate, and then he picked up one of those little salt packets that you get like at McDonald's or Dunkin' Donuts, rips it open, and he proceeds to put salt on it. And I was like, what in the world are you doing, man? You know, it's like gross. He's like, no, it's not. It's like, it is. Why would you put salt on a fruit? Put it on a vegetable. Put it on meat. You don't put it on fruit, man. Are you okay? He's like, try it. He force-fed me. And it was the most delicious watermelon I've ever had. Not because the watermelon itself was that delicious. I mean, it was, but it was the salt. To my shock, didn't make it salty. It actually enhanced the sweetness that was embedded in the watermelon itself. Did you guys know that? Oh, you're just going to go put salt on it, right? 
Don't put too much. You got to put a little bit, right? But there I discovered a unique characteristic of salt that I did not know before, which is salt enhances, magnifies, and brings out the inherent flavor that is embedded in the food itself, which is why when you put salt on steak, it tastes good. Not because you taste the salt in the steak, but because the salt releases the juicy flavors that's embedded in the steak that the salt unlocks. And you know, Jesus knew this idea of salt as well, which is why he says in verse 13, salt loses its taste. I mean, that statement itself alludes to this idea of his awareness that there's something about salt that brings out the natural goodness within certain foods. And when you apply that principle, you come to understand the other responsibility we have as Christians, and that is just as salt brings out the natural goodness of food, Christians are to go out into the world and bring out the natural goodness of the world. Or maybe a better way to put it, Christians are called to go into the world to show the inherent goodness that is embedded in the world by the way we participate in the various cultural activities that are in creation. Now, some of you are hearing this like, whoa, that doesn't sound right, Pastor John, because I grew up going to church where if you don't do things that are explicitly Christian, then you're inherently sinning, right? Some of us probably grew up in very conservative, traditional churches where your youth pastor probably told you, don't listen to Christ- uh, non-Christian music, right? If you like Backstreet Boys, don't. Black Eyed Peas, get rid of it, right? I once asked my youth pastor, what about, what about Celine? Is she okay? Like, no, Celine too. That's when I knew something was wrong, right? He said, Celine too, get rid of her. There is a subculture in the church that says that, un- that if something is not explicitly Christian, that it's inherently wrong and sinful and therefore you shouldn't participate. This is why even my youth pastor, I keep picking on him, I won't name him, but North Carolina, we want a youth retreat, and he says, I want you to bring all of your CDs, non-Christian CDs, bring it all, and Celine, you know, we had this big bonfire, and he says, throw it in, you know, evidence is your recommitment to God, I guess it didn't bother him that he was polluting, you know, the environment, that that wasn't sinful, but to listen to Celine, oh yeah, that's sinful, if you think that's sinful, shame on you folks, by the way, I mean, that's the mindset, it's like, if you don't, if, if you participate in something that's not explicitly Christian, then you're living in sin, I mean, some church traditions even go even further, do you know there are some church traditions that say that if you use electricity, if you wear clothing that have zippers on it, if you wear clothing that have colors, in other words, if you're not wearing only black, you are living in sin, right? Now, what's my point in all this? Here's my point. Yes, the world we live in is corrupt, it's decaying, it's broken, and it's dark, right? I. That's the whole emphasis of my first point. But you have to understand this. It's not utterly dark. It's not utterly decayed. It's not completely corrupt. There's still good things embedded within creation. And because there is still a lot of good, Jesus tells us as his followers, go out into the world as salt and light and bring it out. Enhance the flavorful goodness that is in the world. Don't avoid it. Don't condemn it. Participate it. But participate it in a way where God is Lord, where Jesus is Lord. That's the difference. Let me try to explain where I'm going with this. The Bible says that when God created the world, he created it in such a way to where what we see, what we do, what we experience would teach us something about God, different aspects, different attributes of God. So let's say, for example, you have a massive mansion that represents all of life, 
right? And the various rooms in this mansion represents the various aspects of life. The living room represents family life. The bedroom represents married life and sexual life, right? The playroom represents recreation, whether it's art, whether it's sports. The library represents education. The home office represents work, right? The kitchen represents hospitality and our call to care for others and to provide for others, right? You know, in every house, we put various pictures, and we might put pictures that correspond, you know, to the theme of the room. So if you have a, a, a playroom with a gym, you might have a picture of yourself in sweats, working out. If you're in the library, you might have a picture of yourself, you know, in your graduation gown to remind you of the purpose of that room. That's how God created the world, folks. He created the world in such a way to where every human activity, every human institution would teach us something unique about God in a way that would show us how glorious he is. So, for example, when you work faithfully and diligently, right, to the glory of God, you learn about God as of what? The faithful worker. When you have sexual intimacy with your spouse that's faithful and good, you come to know God as what? The faithful, exclusive lover. Every time you play to do recreational work or recreational activity, You come to understand God as the recreator who renews all things. When you fight against injustice, when you feed the poor, when you show hospitality, you see the God as the God of justice and advocacy for those who are being oppressed. You see, Jesus is telling us that as Christians, our responsibility as we go out into the world in the context of our marriage, in the context of our work, in the context of feeding the poor, we are to bring out the flavorful goodness that is in these things. But the way that we do it is by making Christ central in all of those things. In other words, the glory of God, the honor of Christ, is what compels us to marry the people that we marry and to have the kind of marriage that we do. It compels us to go into the kinds of occupations that we choose and to work in the way that we're called to work. To why we participate in certain philanthropic activities, to serve the poor. In other words, when we go out into the world as Christians to bring out the natural flavor of the world, what we're really doing is we're showing The flavorful goodness of God. The flavorful goodness of God, yeah. The flavorful goodness of God. Psalm 34 tells us what? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That is what Christians are called to do. We are to go out into the world to where when people see how we do marriage, how we do parenting, how we do work, how we do social justice, they will say, hmm, that tastes good. That tastes real, real good. You have to understand something, folks. God is not only in the church. It is true. The only way to enter into the kingdom of God is through the church. But God is everywhere. God is everywhere. And he wants his presence and his goodness and his flavor to be spread out through Christians going into the world so that people who don't know God could taste God. So when they taste God, they will respond to God the way every true human being should. And that's the question. How does a true human being respond to God? And this leads me to my final point, the adoration of light. Starting in verse 14, Jesus says this, You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here Jesus tells us the outcome, the results of when Christians are living salty lives, holy lives, lives of engagement in culture. The way he does this is interesting because he changes the metaphor from salt to light. Why? Well, think about it. 
What is light? Light is a revealer, right? When you come into a room and you turn on the light switch, you don't turn it on so you can stare at the light bulb, right? You don't turn on the light so you can see the light. You turn on the light so that you can see what the light reveals, right? And Jesus says that when we live out our saltiness, or how he puts it, good works, it reveals something. It points to something beyond itself. Listen to what it says in verse 16. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, your saltiness, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What is Jesus saying? Our saltiness doesn't just reveal the salt. It points to, it reveals, it shines forth God. God. To where when people see our marriage as Christians, they should see God. When people see our work ethic, they should see God. When people see how we treat our enemies, how we treat those who are not like us, they should see God. God should be the one that's illuminated. God should be the one that should be seen through our saltiness as we live in this world. A good practical example of this issue well, it came in an article that I read years ago on ESPN.com entitled, I Believe, I Believe, excuse me, I Believe in Tim Tebow. <laughs> look at this, look, take a listen to, uh, this is when he was playing football. Listen to what this uh, sports journalist said. I've come to believe, believe, I'm sorry, I come to believe in Tim Tebow, but not for what he does on a football field which is still three parts Dr. Jekyll and two parts Mr. Hyde. No, I've come to believe in Tim Tebow for what he does off a football field, which is represent the best parts of us, the parts I want to be and so rarely am. Who among us is this selfless? Every week, Tebow picks out someone who is suffering or who is dying or who is injured. He flies these people and their families to the Broncos game, rents them a car, puts them up in a nice hotel, buys them dinner, usually at Dave & Buster's, gets them and their families pregame passes, visits with them just before kickoff, Gets them 30-yard line tickets down low, visits them after the game, sometimes for an hour, has them walk him to his car, and sends them off with a basket of gift. This whole thing makes no football sense, of course. Most NFL players hardly talk to teammates before a game, much less visit with the sick and dying. Isn't that a huge distraction? Just the opposite, Tebow says. It is by far the best thing I do to get myself ready. Here we are, here you are about to play a game that the world says is the most important thing in the world. Win and they praise you. Lose and they crush you. And here I have a chance to talk to the coolest, most courageous people. It puts it all into perspective. The game doesn't really matter. I mean, I'll give 100% of my heart to win it, but in the end, the thing I most want to do is not win championships or make a lot of money. It's to invest in people's lives to make a difference. So that's it. I've given up giving up on him. I'm a 100% believer. Not in his arm, not in his skills. I believe in his heart. His there will be definitely be a pony under the tree optimism, the way his love pours into people right up to their eyeballs until they believe they can master the hopeless comeback too. When I read this article, I thought to myself, that's a salty Christian right there. That's what it means to be salt and light. Here's what's crazy. He did this not by being a pastor. He did this not by being a missionary, not being a full-time church worker. He did this by doing what most people would probably say the most secular, ungodliest jobs you could ever do. He did it as a football player, engaging culture, engaging recreational life. And he shined his light, not by through his football skills, but what compelled him to work and to think and to behave the way that he did because of his Christ. And what happened as a result? A reporter 
noticed him. I doubt this reporter would have noticed him if he was a pastor preaching sermons like I am. He noticed him on the football field, but yet he noticed him so much more than beyond what he could do with the football. He saw the very thing that he wanted to be, which in his own words is what? I've come to believe in Tim Tebow for what he does off a football field, which is represent the best parts of us, the parts I want to be. What is he saying? I want to be like him. I want to be a human being, right? Tebow, through his commitment to Christ, his devotion to Christ, through his desire and his conviction of being a salty Christian, has just teach someone what it means to be human. What a powerful platform and what a powerful advantage point that he has to share with this person and with those around him, as he always does, of why he does it. Why are you so salty, Tim? Is it for the money? Is it for the fame? It's for the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ. Now, I would imagine that as some of you guys are hearing the story, you're either going to be inspired or you're going to be discouraged. And if you happen to be inspired, wonderful. Good for you. Go do the same. But I would imagine that most of us are probably discouraged. And it's probably because that most of us in here are not like Tim Tebow. When I say that, I don't mean that we're talented on the football field or capable of hitting the baseball. And I know that's a questionable thing to say, that he's talented, but you know what I'm saying. It's more because you are not as salty, I am not as salty as he is, right? If you cataloged your life to where you put a comparison of how salty you've been versus how unsalty you've been, I would venture to guess that like me, you would probably say my unsalty column is much larger. To where as you've engaged the world, instead of bringing out the flavorful goodness of the world, you've been exploiting it like so many of us do, right? Well, if that's where you're at, I have good news for you. Because there is something that can overcome the discouragement and inspire us to be salty. You know what that is? It's the gospel. The gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says... God loved us so much that he became a man in Jesus Christ and he suffered the consequences of our unsaltiness. So that instead of us being thrown out and being trampled on, as Jesus says, salt that loses its flavor ends up becoming, he was thrown out. He was trampled upon when he died on the cross for our sins. See, the glorious beauty of the gospel is that when Jesus lived his life, He revealed something in his saltiness, in his holiness, him being crucified. You know what that was? He showed the light of God's mercy, God's forgiveness. When you see the cross, Jesus is in darkness, but in that darkness you see the light of God's mercy, of God's forgiveness, and of God's promise to change you if you have faith in what Christ has done for you. That's what the gospel teaches us. And when you understand that gospel and when you embrace that gospel, you know what that does? It erodes and it decays the discouragement that you might feel and it emboldens you and inspires you to live a life of saltiness, of holiness, of engagement in the world so that you can live out your responsibility of showing the people of this world what it means to be human. So here is my question to you, NCF. Are you living out the most humane life possible? And are you helping others see the humanity that is theirs if they have faith in Christ? 
this time, I just want to invite you to spend a few moments meditating and thinking about as a form of application of today's message. And to facilitate that, I just encourage you just to uh, close your eyes and posture yourselves in a prayerful mindset. And really, I want to ask you this one question as we come to conclusion, and it's simply this. Do you feel a sense of responsibility when it comes to your life? Do you feel that you have a responsibility to this world and the people that is in it? Or do you just have a responsibility just for your own sake and maybe just for your own family? Where is your sense of calling, Christian? Is it just narrowed within your own little bubble? Or do you understand that you have been commissioned by the Lord on high to show the world means to be human as you process that think about these other matters how have you engaged the world how have you pursued relationships how have you pursued vocation how have you pursued your relationships with those who are not like you have you engaged it in a way to bring out the flavorful goodness of our God or have you just contributed to the bitterness of sin of selfishness and of self-service that is so prevalent in our society. Finally, godliness. When you look at your life and you look at your service to God, can you honestly say that it's a life committed to holiness to where you have the conviction that the only reason why you want to be a holy person so that you can give glory to God and that you can collaterally bless your neighbors around you. I invite you now to spend a few moments going to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we have heard your word and as we, we pray, are being convicted by your spirit because of it, O oh Lord, humble us to where we would respond in faith and in faith leading to obedience. O oh God, as we think about this new chapter in the life of our ministry, as we become our own independent ministry, O oh Father, we pray that we would always keep first things first that we would always major on the majors and 
minor on the minors. Father, as we take that step forward in faith, Lord, help us to remember our commission, the holy orders that you've given to us of being a blessing to the world. And may it begin in our commitment of being salt and light as you've called us to be. Oh God, hear us now, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people together say. We're not going to give God his tithes in our offering. If you're visiting us today, we don't expect you to give. But if you are a member of this body, let's give to God what is rightfully his, his tithes and our offerings.